Now, last week, uh, when we looked at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we saw how uh, Luke is beginning part two of his instruction to Theophilus, uh, because part one, the first part was the gospel that he wrote in order to instruct Theophilus all that Jesus did and taught until he was taken up to heaven. And part two, Acts, is really what Jesus began to do uh, as he was raised from the dead and ascended into God, into heaven to sit at God's right hand. And in the first uh, five verses, we saw how Jesus stayed with his disciples after his resurrection for 40 days. And during those 40 days, Jesus showed himself alive. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he showed himself alive to more than 500 brothers at one time. The events of the Christian faith are not hidden, secret, esoteric events that no one has seen. The faith of the Christian faith is rooted in what the things that took place in public witnessed by people. So during the 40 days, Jesus showed himself alive. And of course, you know, that's the only reason why. You remember how all the disciples behaved when Jesus was arrested? They all fled for their lives. A mere 50 days from Jesus' arrest and death, the same people who were huddled in fear, hiding in fear, these people boldly go out and start preaching the gospel. What made the change? It's because they saw Jesus alive, you see? And so that's what Jesus did in those 40 days. He showed himself alive. And Luke also highlights uh, two things that Jesus taught during those 40 days. In verse 3, we read that Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of God. And in verse 5, we read that Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that's what Jesus did during those 40 days. He showed himself alive, and his teachings, it seems, according to Luke, had two uh, emphases, two main things, the kingdom of God and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' disciples began to sense that something historic was about to happen, something amazing was about to happen. And in their mind, that could only mean one thing. And that brings us, first of all, to the question. So that's the first thing we see, the question. The disciples, having witnessed Jesus, Jesus alive during those 40 days, having heard about God's kingdom and the Holy Spirit's coming during those 40 days, they come up with this question because in their mind, this is what God was about to do. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, John Calvin, never the one to mince words, makes this comment about this question. John Calvin writes, there are as many errors in this question as words. 
there are as many errors in this question as words. And another very well-known New Testament scholar, John Stott, very uh, succinctly summarizes the error in this way. Uh, there are three errors, John Stott notes, an error with the verb, an error with the noun, an error with the adverb. First, the verb restore. Will you at this time restore the kingdom? That verb restore shows that they were expecting a return to a political and territorial kingdom. You know, they were hankering for the good old days. Is this when we go back to the way things were? So that's their first error. But there is also a mistake with their noun, Israel. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they were expecting a national kingdom. And there is also an error with the adverb. And so Stott notes, the adverbial clause at this time shows that they were expecting the immediate establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? No wonder Calvin says there are as many errors in this question as there are words. And Calvin again writes, the disciples, they want victory without a battle. They want wages without work. We may laugh, but you know, we're just like them, aren't we? We want the good without the bad. We want glory without suffering. And it's interesting how, starting with verse 8, Jesus' answer corrects every single one of these errors in, in, the, in his disciples' question. But first, in verse 7, Jesus corrects their mindset. Jesus says, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, it seems to me there are two uh, attitudes that ought to have no place in the Christian's mind. They are equally wrong and they are equally dangerous. The first attitude is, is the, uh, the unthinking and unteachable mindset. Uh, these are the people who think that faith is all about emotions. And so they, uh, they see thinking and studying as stifling God's spirit. But you know, the very beginning of Acts, as well as Luke, we saw how Luke compiled these accounts so that Theophilus may have his questions answered, that he may arrive at certainty and this attitude, it's really a kind of a laziness to refuse to think, and the attitude that will not be taught, it is a dangerous and it is an incorrect attitude. But there is the opposite error also. If it is on the one hand wrong and dangerous to not think and not ask questions, the opposite error is prying into the things that God keeps from us. You know, we complain, well, God, why don't you tell us? 
What makes you think that if he told you, you could understand it? Besides, God owes no explanation to us. And that is why Calvin once again says, the true way to be wise is to let our learning keep pace with our master's teaching and be glad not to know those things he hides from us. When scripture makes an end of teaching, we make an end of learning. That's what Calvin is saying. Now, where is Calvin getting this idea? Of course, he's getting it from all of Scripture's teachings, and in particular, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works, words of this law. And so these are the two opposite errors that are equally wrong and dangerous. On the one hand, to be unthinking, unwilling to learn, unteachable. And these people need to be encouraged greatly to think. Studying does not stifle God's spirit. And in fact, apart from faithful and committed study, you should not expect to learn anything deep and true and beautiful from God's Word. So that's one error. But on the other hand, we also need to have the humility to understand that, one, God does not owe us all the answers, and that it is wrong for us to pry, thinking that you are so wise that if He were to give you the answer, that you could even understand it. Instead, we need to understand the things that He has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And let's face it, he has revealed to us many things. And even committing ourselves to study those things that he has revealed will take a lifetime and more. <laughs> and be content and be humble enough to recognize that, that it is wisdom not to pry into the things that God keeps from us. And that is why Jesus tells his disciples when they say, it is at this time, is it at this time? that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel, Jesus says. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You know, that's the Lord very gently and graciously putting them in their place. And we need a time to time. Remember who you are. You are not God. And it's really especially noteworthy that Jesus says this here because the disciples were trying to divine God's plan for the future. But you know, there is only one thin line that separates trying to guess God's plans on the one hand and on the other hand dictating to God what he ought to do. There's only thin line that separates the two on the one trying to guess what God is about to do and telling God what he needs to do. But this is what Jesus says, the things that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, uh, we need less guessing and more reading. Less dreaming and more obedience of the things that God has told us. 
And by all means, please, um, and I hope I made this point sufficiently clear last week, asking questions is not wrong. We should ask good questions so that we may find the answers. And scripture always, everywhere, commends us to study. So studying and thinking are not wrong. They can be done in a godly way. But nevertheless, we need to be humble and content when the Lord stops instructing us. So less guessing, more reading, less dreaming, and more obedience to the things that God has already told us. And then comes the answer. And Jesus answers um, after he says to them, it is not for you to know, then he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You know what Jesus is saying? Less dreaming, more obedience. Stop prying to the things that you do not need to know, but I am telling you what you should be doing. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see how Jesus addresses every error in the, uh, in the disciples' questions. They thought God's kingdom uh, is national, territorial, but Jesus says, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea, and then Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Because God's kingdom comes not only to Israel, but radiates out of Israel to encompass the whole world. And God's kingdom is not tied to a specific format of human government. You see, God reigned in first century Israel, which was then ruled by a puppet king appointed by the Romans. And just the same, in the first century, God reigned in Rome and over Rome, which was then ruled by an emperor. And just the same, God's kingdom came in the city-states of Greece. God's kingdom is present wherever his people worship and serve him. Be it 21st century democratic United States or communist China. God's kingdom is present wherever his people worship and serve him. And another way that Jesus corrects his disciples is by telling them that the fullness of God's kingdom will not come as quickly or as easily as the disciples had assumed. First, they have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, we will see the implications of this throughout Acts, but for now, we simply know that God's kingdom expands through hard and difficult labors. So hard and so difficult, in fact, that they 
cannot be accomplished apart from the empowering of the Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. On your own, in your own strength, you cannot do it. Only my Spirit that I give you will cause you to work and bear fruit. And that is why when the risen Lord Jesus speaks about God's kingdom, he speaks also about the Holy Spirit. The two go hand in hand. There is no advancing of God's kingdom apart from the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, it is to empower and to carry on and move forward the expansion of God's kingdom. And as we will soon see, uh, Jesus sends that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples begin to boldly proclaim Christ. Now, uh, some people draw wrong conclusions from this. They say that every Christian must experience a personal Pentecost, a personal coming of the Holy Spirit. But you know, there is no personal Pentecost any more than there is a personal crucifixion or personal resurrection or a personal ascension. You see, Jesus' birth, his death, his resurrection and ascension, they are all historical and redemptive acts that Jesus performs once and for all to usher in a new era. That is why it is so misguided and wrong-headed to insist that every Christian must experience a personal Pentecost. Jesus was born once, and he will not be born again. He died once, he will not die again. He rose once, he will not rise again. He ascended once, and he will not do so again. It was not about you, and it was not about me. These are historical redemptive acts that Jesus performed once and for all to bring in the new era. And that is to say, his ascension and the sending of the Spirit bring in a new era. Because until then, the whole world was in bondage to darkness and perished in darkness without the knowledge of the true God. And it is true, God called only a few people. He, he made a covenant with Abraham, and he made a nation out of his children, and to them only he gave the law. And he gave the law to show them both their desperate need for forgiveness, but also to give them the hope of redemption. Because, you see, the very center of the Old Testament religion, it's the law that drives people to the mercy seat. It's the law that provides also the sacrifices. So while the whole world was dying and perishing in darkness, God gave to the nation of Israel the law, both to show them how much they needed forgiveness forgiveness, 
and also to drive them, also to long for God's grace and the Messiah. And what Jesus' birth and death and resurrection and ascension and, and the sending of the Spirit accomplish is the fact that that old era of nations being bound in darkness, that old era of people longing and waiting for grace, the Messiah is over. Now people from every tribe and nation can know God. That's why Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. You know, to the first century Jews, there was no greater heresy than, than to consider Samaritans as part of God's covenant people and then the Gentiles. This is a new era that is beginning Jesus died, he rose, he ascended, he sent his spirit, and now people from every tribe and nation can know God. And this is both the hope of the church, and it is also the marching order of the church. And speaking of which, uh, in 21st century America, we have a unique opportunity to bring into God's church people from every tribe and language and nation. We should grieve if God's church on earth, in America especially, looks like it's made up of the same kinds of people. Same skin color, same background, same politics. Because God's church on earth it's supposed to be the very embodiment of this great promise, people from every tribe and nation. And I think America is one of those few places in the world where that's actually possible. And that's the hope of the church, and that's the marching order of the church. And that brings us to the ascension. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of sight. Like Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension was also a public event. And let me emphasize this point once again. It is the cults that demand you to believe something that no one has seen something only the founders claim to have witnessed or have received. Our faith is grounded not in some vague universal principles, but the historical events of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And these people, they saw Jesus being lifted up, shrouded in glory cloud, just the way that the God of the Old Testament showed himself to his people uh, shrouded in the glory cloud. And Jesus was taken out of their sight. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean if you can hop on one of SpaceX's rockets and, and fly far enough from Earth that you can reach Jesus? Uh, clearly, that's not what this means. Even if uh, we could travel a billion light years away from Earth, 
we will still be a part of this created nature. But Jesus ascended, and he returned to where he was with God in glory, beyond nature, from which he initially uttered the word, let there be light. To be separate, to be exalted high above this created world. Now, if you noticed, everything that I said contains spatial words. He went up. He returned to that place. Separate, exalted high above. These are spatial terms. But that's the best that we can do because what this is communicating to us is the Lord of glory who is not a part of this creation but from over and above this creation created the world and he entered into this creation as a frail man. But after his work was done, he once again ascended to take up his rightful place in, the, in glory. And that's where Jesus is now. And these two men that stood by them in white robes, these are likely the very two, uh, the same beings that we read about in Luke chapter 24, the two in dazzling apparel that announce the Lord's resurrection. And their dazzling white robes convey their otherworldliness. And they call the disciples to attention. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is not time for gazing. This is not time to be still. This is the time to act. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will come back. And the question is, will he find us faithful? Will he find us true? Less dreaming, more obedience. Less imagining, more reading. Now is the time to act. Jesus will return. And the question is, will he find us faithful? Will he find us true? Now, what does this all have to do with our daily life today? First of all, Jesus, after he suffered humiliation and death, he was raised in glory and he was exalted. And the New Testament tells us that what happened to Jesus must happen to us. Today we experience humiliation and suffering. Certain humiliation and suffering are imposed on us. Certain humiliation and suffering we take up ourselves as a part of following Christ, taking up our cross. And so we choose as Christians to deny ourselves, to forego the things that this world offers so that we may serve Christ. But just as Jesus 
triumphed through suffering and death and was raised into glory, that's what is going to happen to you and to me. And that's a tremendous comfort as we face suffering in this world, as we suffer humiliation in this world. And to put it in more concrete terms, you know, this world fills our hearts with grief. Evil is close at hand, both near and far. Innocent lives are lost. Evil invades into the tomb, the place that forms life becomes the place that puts life to an end. Evil invades classrooms. The place that nurtures dreams becomes the place where hopes die. We live in an evil world, and we, we weep with those who weep, and we grieve with those who grieve. But we suffer in so many other ways too, don't we? Have you not experienced these baffling realities in your life where you ask, why God? But he doesn't answer. Why? We want to pry. But God does not tell us. And we have to be humble. We have to be humble and we have to be content even when God doesn't tell us, because we know who he is. Because we know that in the end, he will set all things right. In the end, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. In the end, the life that we lived, bearing our cross and denying ourselves, grieving and weeping and suffering, in the end, that will come to an end. And there will be glory and joy. We want to pry, we want to know so badly. But when God doesn't tell us, we humble ourselves and we trust God. And in the meantime, there is something that we can do. Go tell them about Jesus. Be a witness for Jesus. You see, Jesus, he... He sits on his throne, and he will judge righteously. Tell them about God, that our God, he is a father himself. And he himself knows the pain of losing his child. Tell them about God, that he knows the grief of watching his son being overwhelmed by sin and injustice and pain. And that's where we know that the Father of Jesus Christ is full of compassion. Yes, Jesus' reign is hidden from us for now, but one day it will be revealed. And then justice and healing will come in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we, we also want to know when this life of trials will come to an end. We also want to know just what it is that you are doing in our lives. But in the meantime, O oh Lord, help us to be humble and remember that you are good. And may we hope in you, may we be patient, and may we wait for you. And we pray, O oh Lord, that, that our hearts may be renewed in the hope of the Lord Jesus who conquers sin and death, who has entered into glory, who sits at your right hand and reigns over us with grace and truth. So may we receive from your conquering Son every grace, every help that we too also may endure and one day enter into glory. Father, I pray for your mercy upon all your suffering saints the saints of this church and elsewhere. Please hold them in your loving hands. Strengthen them and renew their hope. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.